podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast on Monday, October the 5th, after one of the weirdest weekends in Premier League history. Lots and lots to talk about. We'll get through it all. But we'll start Saturday morning, the early kickoff, Chelsea at home to Crystal Palace. And Chelsea, after a couple of bad results, um, really put on a good display for themselves. A 4-0 win over Crystal Palace, a Palace team that had been in good form so far this season. There's been some criticism of Chelsea. Some of it is justified. They did look a little bit stodgy in attack, but they were ruthless when they had their opportunities. 4-0 win. You can't really argue with that, and that's exactly what Frank Lampard needs. He needs his team to start scoring goals. He gets a goal from Ben Chilwell, a goal from Kurt Zuma, two penalties then from Jorginho, both of them undeniable penalties. This is what Chelsea needed. This is the win they needed to get themselves back on track. Palace had been in good form so far this season. They'd been a problem. Yes, they'd lost to Everton, but they were very unlucky to lose that game. They'd beaten United. They'd beaten Southampton. This was a tough test for Chelsea, and they answered the call. Defensively, they looked an awful lot better. Now, Palace didn't play well, and they did not, uh, didn't offer much. Wolf Zaha had an off day, and of course we saw idiots in the media then start to criticise him, uh, in particular on Talk Sport, saying that he looked like someone that was disinterested and was annoyed that he hadn't gotten his move. Wolf Zaha, so far this season, had been in exceptional form. He had been brilliant for the first three games. So any question on him is just absolute rubbish. Chelsea were just very, very efficient, very effective, and this result gets them back on track. They bounce up to seventh. Now they have seven points from their four games, two wins, uh, a draw and a defeat, scored 10, conceded six. So all in all, it's not bad. It's probably around where you would have expected them to be, in truth. I would have looked at their first four games and thought, yeah, seven points is about right. I would have expected them to lose, lose Liverpool. Now, I think... I probably would have expected a draw at Brighton. They got the win. I probably would have expected them to beat West Brom. They got the draw. But I think seven points is about right at this point in the season. I don't think there's too much negativity you can take from that game. Now, it does look like Chelsea uh, are done in terms of the transfer market. Today is obviously deadline day. Uh, We're recording five hours before the deadline closes. But it doesn't look like the Declan Rice deal will happen and there hasn't really been any other strong links. There may be some outgoings, the likes of Rudiger may leave. But as things stand, it looks like this is what Chelsea have. And that might not be a bad thing. They've already changed the goalkeeper, brought in a new centre-back and brought in a whole bunch of attackers and a new left-back. So they've probably changed enough of their team now 
to the point where any more, and it's going to be really, really hard. It's going to be difficult anyway to get all these players to bet in, but to do any more would just be would just be silly. I like that Lampard made the changes he made for this game. I think it showed a manager willing to adapt. Um, bringing back in Aspilicueta, moving Silva from the left side to the uh, to the right side, going four two three one. And a definitive four-two-three-one playing Callum Hudson Adoy. Uh, I, I thought that was impressive that he got his team right. Uh, I thought Havertz looked a little bit better. It was the first time in a Premier League game he actually looked like he wasn't struggling badly with the physical side. Uh, Werner, a little bit of a concerning performance. Perhaps his finishing hasn't been particularly good, but he's playing wide left. That's not a position he's played frequently. He's generally played kind of an inside left role at Leipzig. But at Stuttgart, he did play as a left winger. Now, when when Pulisic comes back in, you'd expect that he'll go there and Werner will go through the middle. But I thought Tammy Abraham led the line quite well in this game. Didn't like his attitude over the second penalty. Yes, I know you won the penalty, but Jorginho is the designated taker. Yes, I know you're trying to get yourself a goal because you're a number nine. But again... Jorginho's the designated penalty taker. He's really good at taking penalties, so let him at it. Um, I think it's it's a promising sign for Chelsea that they got this win. For Palace, there's no great disgrace in it, but I, I did see some concerns. Mamadou Sacco had an absolute shocker at centre-back. I thought Mitchell, for the first time, looked to be struggling a little bit with the Premier League. But, look, if you told... Palace before this run of games that they would have six points on the board having having faced Southampton who ended last season in great form Manchester United away Everton in the form that Everton have have started the season in and then Chelsea if you told them they were getting six points from that I think they'd have snapped your hand off so all things considered I think both teams can be pretty comfortable where they are at the moment both teams have work to do. Both teams need to evolve a little bit. But that will come. That will come with time. Um, after that, then, we had Everton against Brighton. And I think it's time we all acknowledged just how good Everton are at the moment. They are playing exceptional football. Absolutely exceptional football. This is a team that lost Alan for this game, didn't have Andre Gomes. That's two-thirds of the starting midfield. Lost Richarlison pretty early to an injury and were ruthless. 4-2 victory over a good Brighton team who, fair enough, didn't turn up on the day. But this is a really strong result for Everton. It's seven wins from seven to start the Premier League season. Four start the season. Four wins from four in the Premier League. Scoring goals, looking better than expected defensively. I thought Tom Davies had one of his better performances in the last probably 18 months, uh, filling in for Alan. And if he can make himself a functional cog, he can become a really good squad player for them. You look at that midfield as it starts normally, and you have Decore, you have Alan, and you have Andre Gomes. If in reserve of that, they have Davies, Gabaman when he's fit. And Gilfie Sigurdsson, who I thought had a, had a solid game, they also have Fabian Delft to consider. So all of a sudden you've got depth and you've got options 
they've maybe left themselves a little bit thin up front. That would be my one concern. But in defense, they've got Mason Holgate to come back, who's arguably their best defender. John Joe Kenny will come back. He's going to provide a good backup to, to Seamus Coleman. And in more good news, this morning they announced the signing of Ben Godfrey for a fee in the region of about 22 to 25 million from Norwich. He's a very talented young centre-back who can also fit in at, at holding midfield. And this is a tremendous weekend for Everton, and not just for the things that they did, but you know something else that happened late Sunday night. Everton are top of the league after four games, and they deserve to be. They have been the best team in the league over the first four games. There's no way of arguing it. They were a little bit lucky against Palace. I think that's absolutely fair to say. But they were the better team against Spurs. They were really impressive following up on that. They were really impressive in this game. I think James Rodriguez has taken to the league really, really well. Dominic Calvert-Lewin is unstoppable at the moment. And a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, he's become a penalty box poacher. And and, that, and that's true. That's something he's added to his game. But he's always had that hold-up play. He's always had the link-up play. He's been an incredibly hard worker. And his aerial prowess is second to none. His ability to just hang in the air. Like, it's not even the fact that he's got great spring, which he does. But it's this ability to just hang in the air. And defenders are jumping with him, and they're already on their way down, and he's just kind of hovering in midair. He is very, very good. This Everton team is very, very good. Uh, Yerry Mina getting a goal will do his confidence the world of good, and he's a real confidence player. But as I say, Holgate to come back in, Godfrey to come in, Alan to come back, um, Gabaman to come back, Gomes to come back. Everton are for real. They, they really need to be considered as top four contenders. I think I initially predicted them to finish ninth. I will be revisiting that. I'll be doing that this week. Once the transfer window is closed and the dust has settled, I'll be giving my final predictions for this season, and, and Everton will be higher than ninth. There's no question. This is a good Everton team. I don't think they can win the league because the goalkeeper will let them down. An absolute howler for Brighton's first goal. But... In front of him, I think the team is solid, and I think there's depth in pretty much every position, bar maybe up front. But they do have options. Bernard, Walcott, they can move Richarlison central if they need them to. They've got a couple of good young academy graduates they can call on as well. James Rodriguez is going to be key. If he can stay fit, he is going to be sensational for them all year long. If he has injuries, which he's had in the past, they may struggle a little bit for creativity, but they'll worry about crossing that bridge when they come to it. All credit to Everton. What a summer they've had in terms of the transfer window, in terms of the transformation of the team, the transformation of the mentality, the attitude. Carlo is working magic there. This is one of the best managers in the world. And we really shouldn't be surprised. I did have doubts because I've never seen him go anywhere and rebuild a team. But he's doing it on the fly at Everton, and he is absolutely smashing it at the moment. For Brighton, uh, my concerns of Brighton and my early optimism is waning. 
I still like them. I still think there's a lot of promise. But they've left themselves badly short in the transfer market. Now, rumors rumors are that they're going to sign two young Polish players today, uh, a left wing back and a midfielder. But both of them allegedly are going to be loaned back. They should have been in for Ryan Sessegnon. It looks like he's off to Hoffenheim. They should have gone and gotten themselves a focal point number nine. As as good as Mope, Connolly, and Trossard are, they're all very similar in what they do, and none of them offer an aerial presence, and they really need an aerial presence. I thought they should have that should have been number one priority. Now, I don't know what their finances are like at the moment. Obviously, COVID has had a massive effect on all clubs. But this is a team that has spent 60 to 70 million every summer for the last three. I think their net spend this summer is about 3 million, maybe less. No, it's it's negative because they sold they sold Anthony Knockhart. So they've got a negative net spend. To me, that's just not not good enough. When you've got a manager like Graham Potter, when you've got the building blocks in White, Dunk, Webster, Lamptey, Basuma, Trissard, Mope, McAllister. I, I think you need to be showing a little bit more ambition. Rayan Etnuri, who went to Wolves, he would have been another great option to bring in at left wing back. I don't have an issue with Solly March, but there's a limit on what he can give you, and he was really poor in this game. And I think Lamptey, as good as he is, he had to be taken off because he's getting kicked incessantly in every game. So I think they've left themselves a little bit short in terms of quality. And you really don't want to be relying too much on an Adam Lalana who's shown serious injury issues over the last couple of years. Uh, but all credit to Everton for this one. Fantastic performance, fantastic result. Top of the table. They're the best team in the land right now. That's the only way to look at it. Leeds United against Manchester City was the third game on the slate. And I have to say, City got away with one here. They really got away with one here. Um, They were outplayed by a Leeds team that are absolutely full of confidence. And a Leeds team that I think quite similar to Liverpool actually play off their crowd and get better with their crowd... City, for me, don't need the crowd. City, to me, are quite a clinical team. Leeds are a passion team, of, a lot like Liverpool. That that high-pressing, high-energy style, I think, feeds off atmosphere. And I think if and when fans come back, we're going to see more from this Leeds team. Um, they've got more to come as well. We know that they've bought Diego Loriente. He's going to come into the team at some point. They're in the process of finalizing a deal for the Brazilian winger Rafinha from uh, Stad Ren. He's an exceptionally talented player. I think he comes in and immediately becomes one of the starting, or maybe not immediately, but he, he'll be one of the starting wingers in the short term. And in the long term, I think you might see him move a little bit more centrally and become that Pablo Hernandez successor. Whether or not that's their last deal for the window, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, knowing Leeds and how aggressive they've been and how ambitious they've been, it may not be. 
they may have a target in mind for the role that they fancied Mikhail Croissants for. Um, it looks like he's going to Marseille after failing the medical at at Leeds. But Rodrigo gets his first goal, and it's it's no less than they deserve. Leeds had been exceptionally good in this game. I thought City defensively were improved. I thought Ruben Diaz and Laporte showed signs early of, of what a partnership they can form. Um, Ederson had to make a couple of very good saves in this game. But that 3-0 with Rodri in front, I think that is something City can build around long term. Now, you'd hope that Diaz will emerge as the leader of the defensive unit and kind of the vocal organizer because that's what they're lacking and have lacked since company retired. But when you put that diamond in place with Ederson one end, Rodri the other, and then the two centre-backs, that's something you can really build on. Um, And then you can add your incredible talent around it like Kevin De Bruyne and Phil Foden either side of, of Rodri. Or maybe you fancy Bernardo Silva in the in the role instead of Foden. You've got Raheem Sterling, you've got Riyad Mahrez, you've got Ferran Torres, Aguero to come back, um, Gabi Jesus to come back. You've got talent and attack, but if you can get that solidity in defence, that can be really important for City. Benjamin Mendy is a problem. He really can't be City's starting left-back. He just can't be City's starting left-back. Whether Nathan Aki has to play there for the year or not, I don't know, but Mendy cannot be the answer there. Because despite the talent he has and the physical profile, he just seems to switch off constantly. And I'm not a huge Kyle Walker fan, but he has concentration issues as well. But he has managed to improve in that regard. Now, he's lost quite a bit going forward as he's become a more solid defender. And whether Mendy needs to do that or not, I don't know. But if if you're just going to look for a solid defender, just play Nathan Aki there. Um, this was a very promising result for Leeds. Very promising performance and a promising result. Seven points after their first four games. They'll be very, very happy with that. For City, only four points after their first three games. Uh, a negative goal difference. This is not the start that Pep Guardiola had in mind. Um, we'll wait and see if they if they do anything else today. I think it, it's probably too late for them to pull off a big deal. But maybe they can find a left back to at least give them an, an alternative to Mendy. Because I, I just think if Mendy is their starting left back all season, they're going to have major, major issues. The final game of Saturday then is the game that I said was nailed on to be a nil-nil, and it just wasn't. Uh, Newcastle turned in an impressive display in 1-3-1 at home to Burnley, and uh, Steve Bruce doing Steve Bruce things. Has his team level on points with Spurs, with Chelsea, with Leeds. Seven points after, after three games, after four games rather. Leeds are the better team. There's there's no way to argue it. They look threatening in attack. St. Maximum had Burnley's defenders just terrified. Every time he got the ball, he was just causing problems for them. And they did resort to just fouling him. And I thought the referees could have done a much better job 
at protecting him. I think they've kind of failed him in that regard. But Newcastle looked balanced. Defensively, they were strong. Kraft in at right back, Shar, Fernandez, and Lewis. That's a defense that's that's sturdy, and they still have um, Jamal Shells to come back into it. So they can be confident in, in that back four. In midfield, Jeff Hendrick is good. John Joe Shelby is good. Hayden is very good. They have both long staffs to come into that that mix. And then say Maxim plays on the left hand side and is is super effective. They also have Ryan Fraser who can be an option. They have Miguel Almiron who can be an option in wide roles or maybe just off the front. But they've got decent depth there. And up front, Jolington has found his form because he's not being asked to wear the number or to, well he's been asked to wear the number nine shirt but he's not been asked to wear the burden of being the number nine he's not been asked to play that role Callum Wilson is much happier in that role and Jolington kind of floats off him drops a little bit deeper drops wide gets involved in the build-up play a lot more and is showing the form that earned him the move to Newcastle when he played for Hoffenheim and yes, he played in the central role, but he had two real strikers either side of him. And he would drop off. He would go wide. He would act more as a creator. Whether or not he was involved in the play, he was creating opportunities because he was pulling defenders out of the middle and creating space for others. And that's what he's doing here for Callum Wilson. Saw it a couple of times where he dropped off the front, his centre-back went with him, and Wilson had more space to operate in. Uh, Wilson's had a great start to life at Newcastle, and that that investment is is looking like a good one so far. They still have their goalkeeper to come back, Dubravka. So Newcastle have started well, and I think they're going to be safe. I said when they got their signings done, I think this this keeps them up. I I, I think they'll be more comfortable than I initially thought as well. Um, for Burnley though, there's, there's there's questions and there's problems. There really is problems. Defensively, without Ben Mee, they just look lost. Tarkovsky's had to move from right side to left side, so that's not good. So now you've weakened both sides. Because Tarkovsky's not as good on the left side as Ben Mee is. He's much better on the right side, and he's better than Long is on the right side. So both centre-back positions are, are, are weakened. I'm not sure why Sean Dyche hasn't insisted on signings this summer. The only player they've brought in is Dale Stevens, who to me was past his best two years ago. Playing Brownhill out on the right-hand side when he's much, much better centrally. You do have Goodmanson, you have Brady on the bench. You could have played either of them. It's not good for Burnley. It's not good at all. Three defeats from three. No real goal threat. Poor at the back, which is really not like them. I, I think Dyche may need to consider his future. He hasn't been backed. Uh, the Burnley ownership, yes, I know they're frugal. Yes, I know they run the club very well. I know the club turn a profit every year. But what's more important, that you turn a profit or that you stay in the Premier League? Because staying in the Premier League is what gets you the profit. If you drop down to the championship, you're going to be in bother. And the likes of Tarkovsky, the likes of Pope, the likes of McNeil, the likes of Chris Wood, the likes of Brownhill, 
they're not going with you. A couple of injuries and Burnley are in trouble. A couple more and it may become a case where they can't turn it around. Very, very disappointing and underwhelming start for Burnley, but it matches their their transfer window. Uh, Into Sunday. And um, I don't know what happened. <laughs> this is this is the craziest day I can remember in in Premier League history. Uh, starting off with with Leicester, who had won their first three games, were looking really good, and got completely demolished by a West Ham team who turned up full of fight full of vigor, full of endeavor, with a plan, and just ruthlessly took Leicester apart in truth. They couldn't deal with Mikel Antonio. They couldn't deal with Bowen. Suchek and Rice in the midfield just controlled the game, bullied the Leicester midfield. The back three worked well. The new the new right back, Kufal, he, he had an impressive game. Maybe David Moyes not being at the games is, is important to this West Brom team. They are better without Mark Noble in the team, it must be said. They've become a better team. And it was the same last season. Their, their best games were without Mark Noble. I think he can still play an important role off the bench, but they're better off without him in the team. Um, I still think West Ham are going to have problems this season, but back-to-back wins against good teams so I was I was wrong about West Ham I apologize to any West Ham fans who who may listen I think I wrote you off too quickly I still think you're in the relegation mix I still think you may go down but six points after after these four games is is good going and this one this one was really impressive it's one thing to win a game at home it's another thing to travel and do it. I think Leicester are guilty of overlooking West Ham. As I watched the game, the one thing that kind of came out of it for me was that I just thought Leicester were really arrogant in how they turned up, how they started. I felt like they were overlooking West Ham, looking on to the international break and beyond that. And I'd put that on the manager. I would put that on Brendan Rodgers. It's something that I've seen from Rodgers a couple of times when he was Liverpool manager, he did it at Celtic a couple of times as well, especially in European games. And and there's no question that they were guilty of that here. Um, but all credit goes to West Ham. Uh, a dominant performance. Mikel Antonio should be in the England squad. He just should. He deserves to be in the England squad, even if it's just once. Pablo Fornal's control for his goal, by the way, should be talked about endlessly. Because it's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable how he controls that ball. Um, things are looking up for West Ham. And, and they still have Diop to come back into this team. I think Haller is showing little bits and pieces in the bench role. I'd still like to see him back in the in the first team. But when the team is working as it is and they've won back-to-back games, you don't change it. You leave it as it is. Leicester will turn this around. They won't this... I don't think this will affect them. I I don't think it's going to cause them uh, to go into a bad run. 
they have players to come back into this team. The loss of Ndidi for three months or whatever length it's going to be is massive. But Cengiz Under will come into the team. You'd imagine Wesley Fafana will come into the team at some point. If they're going to play a back three, then Fafana, Evans and Sayonchu as the three is probably the way to go. Ricardo Pereira has to come back. He'll come in at right wing back, which will push push Castanier to, to left wing back. And then we'll see how he adapts there because obviously he's been playing on the right-hand side since since arriving. Mendy is not the answer to uh, replace Ndidi. I think they'd be better with Hamza Chowdhury in there. Mendy's obviously the one performing in training and had played played pretty well so far this season, but I think Hamza Chowdhury's a better player. It'll be interesting to see how they fit J- um, James Madison back into this team, whether they move Barnes to the right of the front three or whether they just go back to their more normal 4-1-4-1. But Brendan will need to give them a bit of a rocket. Um, but all credit to West Ham. A great result. Tenth in the league after four games. It's more than they would have asked for at this point, I think. Um, Southampton played West Brom at the same time. And another solid performance for Southampton. Comfortable 2-0 win. Uh, More shots, more shots on target, most possession. Pretty comfortable in all regards. Worrying for West Brom, how blunt they look in attack. The defence looked a little bit better in this game. Not hugely better, but a little bit better. But I thought Southampton had more gears to go through. I thought if Southampton had wanted to, they probably could have scored another two or three. Danny Ings had a good chance. Che Adams had a couple of chances. I like how that pairing is working. I like the balance in that team at the minute. They still have um, Salisu to come back in. It's to come in at centre-back. He'll come in for Vestergaard. So then you've got Walker, Peters, Bednarak, Salisu and Bertrand. That should be very solid. Might take Salisu a couple of weeks to get up to speed, but he's a very good defender. He's, he's a better defender than Vestergaard. I did have concerns about the midfield. Romeo had a good game. Obviously got a good goal. But they have added Ibrahima Diallo. So obviously Sangera was the was the target. He went to PSV Eindhoven. They've moved quickly, gotten an alternative target. This guy's very good. He's very highly rated. Came through the Monaco Academy. He's been abreast the last couple of years. Good all-round, box-to-box midfielder. Good energy, good ball winner. Strong player. I think he'll add quite a bit to them. French on the 21 international, so he's highly rated in his homeland. I think he's a good signing. I don't I don't know what the fee is. There was rumours that it was 13 million or so. Uh, that seems a little, you know, that seems a bit right. I'll ask Jeremy Smith what he thinks when uh, when we have him on for tomorrow's uh, transfer special. Jeremy Smith is a French expert. Most people should know him. Um, but it's a good start for Southampton. They They didn't start the season well in terms of the first two games. Disappointing at West uh, at at Crystal Palace, awful against Spurs, a genuinely awful performance against Spurs. But they've bounced back with two wins in a row. 
Ralph seems to be able to work his way out of, of mini slumps quite well. And um, and it's promising for Southampton. It is a promising start for Southampton. Get themselves good points on the board. Danny Ings is in form. Jennifer's in form. Che Adams is in form. As long as they keep things solid at the back and get those bodies in midfield, they'll be absolutely fine. They'll be a comfortable mid-table team this year. Uh, after that, then, we had Wolves against Fulham in maybe the only really boring game of the weekend. I, I thought it was quite a quite a dull encounter. Uh, Wolves comfortable. There was, you know, Fulham had moments. I thought uh, Luckman looked really impressive when he came on. Did not think that uh, that poor old Kamara was impressive. Missed a great chance, really, really great chance to give it, to put his team back in the game and get them a point after brilliant work from Luckman and Mitrovic. But that Luckman Mitrovic partnership is something I can see being beneficial to them this year. Andre, uh, Anthony Robinson at left back had a really promising debut. Ole Ane at right back, really promising debut. Finally, Dennis Adoy was dropped. Finally, Michael Hector was dropped. They have centre-backs coming in by the looks of things. William Saliba, apparently, from Arsenal, potentially coming in on loan, uh, which would be big. Strange decision by Arsenal. There was rumours he was going to go back on loan to to France because of family issues. His mother passed away from COVID. He wanted to be closer to home. So that was understandable. But if he's joining Fulham, that is genuinely strange, um, especially given Arsenal starting David Luiz at centre-back. But the two full-backs were an improvement yesterday, and Guisa continues to look levels above all his teammates. Mitrovic is a problem for everybody. If they can just get a little bit more creativity, whether it's within the the squad or whether they have to do something today, maybe they'd have a fighting chance. But as things stand, it doesn't look good for them. Four defeats from four, only the three goals scored, 11 conceded. Uh, You do have to have doubts over them, as you do at West Brom, as to whether or not they can survive at this level. But yesterday was their best performance of the season so far. And for Wolves, they ground, they ground out the result. Jimenez should have scored. Semedo should have scored. They didn't. Neto was left to provide the goal. It's a really good strike from a quality young player. And I think Wolves have gotten worse this summer. I really like the signing of Rayan Outnuri. I really like that signing. I think he's an exceptionally good young left-back who'll fit in perfectly as a wing-back in this team. But even though Semedo's a better player than Doherty, he's not a better wing-back, and he's certainly not better as an outlet. I don't think letting Jota go to Liverpool was a good decision on their behalf. I think they're going to miss him. I think there's maybe a little lack of goals now with him gone because you're really going to be heavily reliant on Jimenez and you're going to need Adama Traore to find a new level in terms of goal scoring that he hasn't had before. So, I mean, they'll be fine. They'll be good. They'll be top half, no question. 
But it's I think they've made the season a little bit tougher on themselves than they needed to. Good to see Kiana Hoiver get his debut though. That was that was nice to see. Arsenal bounced back from defeat at Liverpool with a two one win over Sheffield United. Great to see Baki Osaka get a goal. Great to see Nicolas Pepe get a goal. That'll do his confidence the world of good. Thought Arsenal were pretty good in this game. Moved to the 4-3-3 for the first time this season. Looked a little bit lightweight in midfield at times. I think I think a better team could have caused them problems. But defensively, the balance looked good. Bellerin, to me, isn't, isn't a right back. And I think he was poor against Liverpool, and I didn't think he was great in this one. But Kieran Tierney, at his more natural left-back position, always will look more comfortable. Gabriel as he has in his previous two Premier League starts, a shaky early period, and then sort of grew into the game as time went by. I just don't think David Louise is going to help him a whole bunch this season. Like For me, if you're if you're a serious team with top four ambition, you can't have David Louise in your team. Not now, not in 2020. He will cost you more goals than he saves you over the season. Um... For what for for Sheffield United, it's it's very concerning. Very very concerning. That's four defeats out of four. And in truth, they look a little bit lost now. They do have Rian Brewster to come into the team, and you'd imagine Chris Wilder will turn it round. I think he will. I again, I I don't think they're going to go down, but I, I think the season's going to be harder for them than I thought. They've left themselves short. They haven't upgraded in midfield this year, which they had to do. They needed another, maybe not a Sander Berger level, but somebody closer to him. Because at the minute, he is so far above the rest of the midfielders of that club. It's it's really, really jarring to drop off from when he has the ball to when any of them else has when any of the rest has the ball. They've left themselves short at the back. Jack O'Connell's gonna be out for a while. When Robinson came into the team last year, they fell apart. He is a weak link for them. He's not a centre-back. He's a left-back. He's, fra- he's too lightweight. He's too frail, too fragile. Gets bullied too easily. For me, that's something they need to address. I think they've left themselves short, and I'm a little bit concerned about them. Um, but for Arsenal, it's another good win. Uh, pops them up to fourth place, three wins from four. That's exactly where they would have wanted to have been. I think when they looked at their first four games, that's probably where they, you know, best case scenario, that's where they would be. Um, Their incomings appear to be done. It looks like Thomas Partey is staying at Atletico. It looks like Hasemauer has has turned down the move to stay at Lyon. Whether or not Arsenal ever got close to buying either, I don't think they did. Because I don't think they had the money. I think they they could have come up with the money for Partey in installments over a bunch of years. But Atletico Madrid were like, well, that's not, not how buyout clause works. You have to give us all of the money and then we give you the player. Awar, I don't think they got close to. The rumoured bids were in the 30 million kind of region. Leon wanted 60. I think he's better off staying where he is anyway and developing. And look, they brought in Danny Ceballos on loan. 
they didn't really need him this season. They needed that box to box power powerhouse more. They needed that hour more or the the Partey type player more. I'm surprised they didn't move for Bubakari Samara from uh, from Lille. Maybe they still will. There's still a couple of hours left, but I think Arsenal have left themselves a little bit short, but I do like the direction they're going in. I like Arteta. I like the plan he has. And I think it's it's promising how Arsenal have started. So, so th- to this point, it had been a pretty normal weekend. You'd look at the Leicester West Ham game and say, oh, that one's a bit of a surprise. But, you know, Chelsea win- winning at home, acceptable. Everton winning at home, acceptable. Leeds and, and City drawing, acceptable. Newcastle winning at home is acceptable. The Leicester-West Ham one's weird, but Southampton beating West Brom at home, it's perfectly normal. Wolves beating Fulham at home is expected, and the same with Arsenal-Sheffield United. So at this point, it's a normal weekend. And then things just went completely bananas. Now, it would be easy to sit here and criticise Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It'd be easy to sit here and put it down to Anthony Martial being an idiot and getting himself sent off. But the truth is that Spurs were just a much better team. Spurs beat Manchester United 6-1 because they were the much better team. Man for man, they were better. All over the field. Their lads turned up, the United lads didn't. 6-1 didn't flatter Spurs. It flattered United a little bit. It didn't flatter Spurs. I don't want to hear that it was down to the red card because... Losing your number nine should not cause your defence to fall apart the way United's did. Harry Maguire turned in one of the worst performances I've ever seen by a centre-back. Now another one of them comes <laughs> comes next, but Harry Maguire was particularly terrible in this game. To the point where he actually fouled one of his own players, which enabled Spurs to score their first goal. Not content with playing two dangerous headers and putting two players under pressure. Harry Maguire then grabbed Luke Shaw, wrestled him to the ground, stopped him from clearing the ball and allowed Tangay Andembele to score. And it didn't get better. It got worse from there. The second goal, he commits a foul, doesn't block the free kick taker. Let's Harry Kane take a quick free kick. And Youngman Son runs through. And if Youngman Son's a great player. And in that position, yes, he should score. But his first touch is really, really heavy. And if David De Gea isn't glued to his line, like he's terrified to leave it in case he loses it, he easily comes out and smothers that ball. Easily. After that, it was a procession. Kane scores, Son scores again, Aurier scores, Kane scores a late penalty. And Spurs were easing off the gas after the after the fifth one went in. Spurs kind of let off a little bit. If they'd wanted to, they really could have run this up even further. They had 22 shots. United, United had five. 62% possession at Old Trafford. Even with 10 men, you should have more than that. Sorry, you're Manchester United. I've seen Luke Shaw been hammered in, in the press. I'm not sure why. 
Did he have a good game? No, absolutely not. Was he United's worst player? No, not even close. Not even top three. Harry Maguire was shocking. Paul Pogba was a disgrace. An absolute disgrace. The laziness of his performance. This is a guy who's captained that team. Maguire is the captain. Pogba didn't bother running at times in this game. He was walking through the game. As Spurs are counter-attacking, he's half-jogging back down the field. He doesn't track his runner for the Aurier goal. He gives away the penalty. Just all in all, a disgraceful performance. That's $169 million that United have spent between Pogba and Maguire. Throw in another 50 for Juan Bissaka, who also had a stinker. It's 219 million, badly spent. Juan Bissaka is not a bad player, but he's a 20 million pound fullback. He's solid defensively, terrible going forward. Harry Maguire is not a bad player. He's 35, 40 million pound centre back. He's James Tarkovsky with better press. Miguel Delaney, the journalist for The Independent, said he's heard from players that have played with Maguire that they don't enjoy playing with him because of his lack of pace, because of how it exposes other people. And that was very much the case here. His lack of pace caused all of United's other defenders' problems. Now, Harry Maguire was an important signing for United because of the goalkeeper they had, because... Even at his very best, the one weakness in David De Gea was crosses. Doesn't like coming to deal with crosses. Doesn't like being put under pressure. Can be flappy when the ball's in the air. So what United needed was a centre-back who could dominate the air. And the best one in England is Virgil van Dijk, but he was gone. United couldn't get couldn't get a meeting with him when he was leaving Southampton because he'd pick Liverpool. So United had to find an alternative. And the alternative they found was Harry Maguire. And Harry Maguire is excellent in the air. You throw anything into the box, he'll head it clear. And if United were playing a deep line, because remember, when United first targeted him, Mourinho was the manager. And that United team played a very deep line. They basically just defended inside their own 18-yard box. They let teams come on to them, broke it up, and counterattacked. Maguire is now being asked to play in a higher line under Ollie. And it doesn't work because he's getting exposed for pace. So while Maguire was nowhere near worth the money they paid, it's also part of the problem that Ollie is using him badly. And it's not, he's not the only one that Ollie is using badly. He's not the only one by a long shot that Ollie is using badly. I don't know why he's sticking with 4-2-3-1 as his base formation. He's playing Bruno too high. Bruno's not a number 10, he's a number 8. Bruno needs to play in a midfield 3. Pogba would also be more suited to that 3. The problem is they don't have a defensive midfielder. Nemanja Matic looks like, looked like a corpse in that game, shuffling around the pitch. 
how United have allowed themselves to get to the end of this window without addressing their biggest needs at holding midfield and centre-back, I don't know. It looks like the Alex Tellez deal is done. He's a good left-back. Yes, he's better than what they have. Was it a big need? No, it was about seventh on what they needed. Left-back was about seventh on the list of things that United needed. Edinson Cavani's coming in. I'm not against the signing. I think it kind of makes sense. But allegedly the wages are enormous. Allegedly he's getting a £10 million signing bonus, which, you know, it is what it is. But United are also paying £10 million in agent fees? For what? What have his agents done to warrant being paid anything? It's the end of the de- it's the end of the deadline. He had to sign for somebody. He's been turned down by half the clubs in Europe because the demands were so ridiculous. He's put his, ha- his career in the hands of charlatans. United are paying that money. He'll be a good bench option. He'll give them depth. He'll give them experience. But the four two three one needs to stop. The players they have are much more suited to four three three. Greenwood and Rashford are not wingers. They're inside forwards. Get them as close to goal as possible. The problem is you don't have width from fullback. You could get it at left back with Shaw if you just push him on. Maybe the answer is to play Brandon Williams at right back. And then maybe, just maybe, you move Wan-Bissaka to centre back. Because I don't think long term... Juan Bissaka can be I don't think he can be your right back not in the modern game I mean there's not maybe there's an opportunity for United to look at moving to something of a of a 3-4-3 Juan Bissaka on the right Maguire in the middle of it Shaw on the left of it Maybe Dan James could work as a wing back. Maybe. The squad is just so strange. You play Williams at right wing back would be would be the best role. And Tellez at left wing back. That would be the better idea. Maybe you could use Dan James as a wing back, though, just in certain circumstances. Against bad teams, when you're going to have 70% of the possession, maybe you can use him there. But then you have to drop one of, of Bruno or Pogba, and that has to be Pogba. Play Bruno and Fred. Let's get Fred to do all the dirty work. Bruno will work endlessly as well. And then you play that front three. But the 4-2-3-1 doesn't work. And United looked like a team that had given up in that game. And again, I'm not going to be the Oli out guy. That's not for me. That's for others. But to see no criticism of him in the media is just staggering. None. None on Sky, none on BT, because he's got his mates in the studio. Spurs were brilliant. Spurs deserved their win. Spurs probably deserved to win by a little bit more. Spurs are going to be a problem. They're deep. They've got quality all over the pitch. It looks like Endembele has found his way into the good graces. It looks like Deli Ali's back in the good graces. Regulon is in form. This team still has Toby Alderweireld that can come into it. 
Doherty that can come into it. The Celso can come into it. They've got their new striker arriving, Carlos Vinicius. They got Mora, they got Bergvine. This Spurs team are really, really strong. And they're strong all over. There's depth everywhere. Spurs don't get top three this season. It's it's a, an unmitigated disaster. So that was weird. United losing 6-1 at home, no matter how bad or good United are, United losing 6-1 at home is always weird. No matter who it's to. I mean, we're used to United being dominant at home. Old Trafford was not a place you wanted to go if you ever needed a point. United were just unstoppable there. So for them to lose 6-1 at home, it's very, very strange. But if you thought that was the end of the weird, you didn't count on this season and this year and what they have been. Because Aston Villa put seven past Liverpool. Reigning champions, the best team in the league for... Arguably for two years. They were arguably better than City in, in the in eighteen nineteen. Lost the title by a point, but they were exceptionally good that year and they won the Champions League. So you could argue they were the best team in England that year. Last year, there was no question. This year, coming off dominant performances over Chelsea and Arsenal, Liverpool were going into this game absolutely riding a high. Alison Becker gets injured in training. Sadio Mane has COVID. Thiago Alcantara has COVID. And none of that explains what happened. None of it explains what happened. This is the first time since 1953 that the reigning champion has conceded seven goals. It's the first time since the 60s that Liverpool have conceded seven goals. It's without question the worst performance of Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool tenure. It's without question largely on the shoulders of Jurgen Klopp. A couple of weeks ago when Spurs beat Southampton, I criticised Ralph Hasenhutl for being too dogmatic, been too stuck in his ways, for not being willing to change, not being willing to adapt mid-game, for insisting on playing the high line when it was getting exposed and torn apart time after time. And exactly the same criticism has to go to Jurgen Klopp here. His performance in this game was was nothing short of shambolic. First and foremost, Liverpool's high line works in part because of Alisson Becker. Because of the starting position that he takes up. With a different goalkeeper who doesn't take the same starting position, there should have been adaptations made before the game. Liverpool should not have gone into this game trying to defend the halfway line while their goalkeeper stood in his own six-yard box. So there's the first issue. Second issue is that as goals started to flood into your own net, you should have changed things. When it was clear that Villa had identified the weakness and were timing their runs brilliantly, and we're willing to have two and three offsides just for that one chance that they will get in. You should have dropped your defensive line. You should have dropped the 10 to 15 yards, become a little bit more conservative, 
Because on that massive pitch at Villa Park, your pressing did not work at all. Not even a little bit. Joe Gomez somehow managed to top the performance of Harry Maguire. And I'm a big Joe Gomez fan. He's a young centre-back. He's still learning. But there's no excuses for that performance. There's no excuses for the manager leaving him out there for that long either. He should have been hooked at halftime. He wasn't the only one that was terrible. Adrian had a stinker in goal. The first goal isn't entirely on him. Alexander-Arnold was hopeless. Van Dijk was absolutely awful. The worst performance I've ever seen from Virgil van Dijk. The midfield did okay. That's about it. They were overrun a little bit. Bobby Firmino was hopeless. He just looked, he looked lost. He hasn't been in good form for the best part of a year now. And it may be time for Liverpool to start having some thoughts about moving him to the bench for a little while. Bringing Mane, when he's you know healthy again, back into the team in that number nine role. Or changing the shape. It would be easy to make some excuses for Liverpool. Three of the Villa goals are, are flukes. Massive def- deflections. That would be easy. You know, no Mane, no Alisson. No Thiago. It would be easy to make excuses. But they don't exert, don't deserve excuses. And Aston Villa deserve more than to have excuses made for their opposition. Because Aston Villa were absolutely brilliant. From start to finish, they were brilliant. They had a very clear game plan. They had obviously studied Liverpool in depth. They had caused Liverpool problems at Villa Park last season. So they knew where the weaknesses were in this Liverpool team. And as good as Liverpool are, there are there is a weakness in the team. And the weakness is that they play that high line. They get away with it a lot because they're really, really good. Because Van Dijk is great at calling the defensive line. And because Alisson Becker is one of the best keepers in the world. And because he plays such a high starting position, they do get away with it a lot. Villa weren't going to let them get away with it. Villa just targeted that high line. And exposed it over and over and over again. And in truth, 7-2 is about right. Even with the three heavily deflected goals, Ross Barkley missed a couple of great chances. Ollie Watkins missed a one-on-one. Yes, Liverpool probably could have scored a couple more. But Villa deserved seven. They absolutely deserved seven. Their defence was good. I thought Matty Cash and Ezra Konza did a great job. Um, dealing with most of Liverpool's threat coming down the left-hand side with, with Jota, with Andy Robertson. I thought Douglas Louise was tremendous in midfield, at the base of that midfield, just breaking up play. John McGinn and Ross Barkley were both excellent. Ollie Watkins was tremendous. Get himself, got some, gets himself a hat-trick. Left foot, right foot, and a header. Can't ask for more. Trezeguet put in the shift to end all shifts. Did everybody's running for them? They were all doing their own running, but he was doing it for them as well. That guy never stopped until the minute he was taken off. He looked exhausted going off because he had put in a proper shift. Maddie Target and Tyron Mings, both excellent as well. But Jack Grealish was just sensational. It's the performance of the weekend without question. 
the creme de la prem, if you will. Two goals, three assists, just taunted Liverpool. The nutmeg of Van Dijk, the line-breaking passes, the defence-splitting passes, the little dribbles, just the superb all-round performance. Wearing number 10 on his back and turning turning in a 10 out of 10 performance, Villa were brilliant. They were absolutely tremendous from start to finish. They deserve this win and they should get all the credit for this win. They absolutely deserve to sit in second place in the league. For Liverpool, they've got two weeks to sort this out. Two weeks to shake it off. Alison Becker's out for six weeks by all accounts. So they need to make a decision. They need either need to find a goalkeeper who's not going to be a complete liability or they need to address the defensive issue. Drop that defensive line. Now they've got Joel Matip to come back as well, which will help. Jordan Henderson will come back as well. So they'll get bodies back. But 11 goals conceded in four games. That's the joint second worst defence in the league along with Man United and Fulham, who are bottom of the league. So that's that's not company you want to be in. Um, what a terrible performance by Liverpool, my God. Uh, but Villa were great, and Villa deserve all the credit for being great. Simple as that. Uh, who would have thought that after four games, the top four would be Everton, Aston Villa, Leicester and Arsenal? Nobody had that. I'm sorry, if you say you did, you're lying. All credit to Everton. And all credit to Aston Villa, both unbeaten still. Uh, Everton have played obviously four games, Villa three. But the Merseyside Derby is up next for Liverpool. And Everton are going to be probably the favourites for the first time in 15 years, maybe. It's not, a, it's not a position Liverpool are used to. It's not a position Everton are used to. So it'll be interesting to see how they react. Uh, that's it. That's me for today. That is all 10 games. What a weekend. What a crazy season so far. Tomorrow, the two-footed podcast, Transfer Window Bonanza. All the incomings from France, the Netherlands, Germany, Spain, and Italy will be covered. On Wednesday, I'll have Lee Scott on, and we'll talk about some of the internal Premier League moves, as well as you know Lee's tactical breakdown of the weekend. And the Portuguese to Premier League transfers, we'll talk about them then as well, um, with some guests. Got guests. Lots of guests this weekend, or this week. Ryan Baldy's coming on on Thursday. That'll be must-listen. Um, there's no Premier League games next weekend, because the international break, but I'll find some, some way to have Guy involved. Uh, so you you know we can get guy guy lo- guy loves it guy loves the attention, that right guy loves the attention. Uh, thank you as always to EPLindex.com. Do check out all the writing that's there. Thank you to Liberty Shield. Check out the services at LibertyShield.com, a VPN provider. Really good services, really attractive packages. Use my code EPLVPN to get twenty percent off in your hardware or software. Thank you to you for listening. Without you, there wouldn't be a show. I wouldn't bother doing it. Thank you very much. I'll see you tomorrow.
Sports Social Podcast Network.